If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In the context of a war in which soldiers, sailors, and airmen are risking their lives every day, to a lot of people, being a secret agent was, a, was much more fun. And it sort of sounds crazy to talk about it being fun. Of course, it stopped being fun if you ended up in a concentration camp or against the wall. That was Sir Max Hastings talking about Second World War spies. The fascinating thing about Humboldt is that he is not the discoverer of one thing. He's not the discoverer of a natural law of a continent or something like that. He is. He comes up with a view of the world. And that was Andrea Wolfe discussing the life and work of Alexander von Humboldt. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our fifth podcast of October 2015. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Our first interview this week is with Sir Max Hastings, one of Britain's best-known military historians, as well as being a journalist who edited the Daily Telegraph. Max's latest book is The Secret War, which tells the amazing story of espionage in World War II. I visited him in his London home a little while back to find out more. 
After your last book on 1914, why have you decided to go back to World War II and then specifically to the Secret War this time round? Well, I always try and write books about things that I feel there's something new to say about. And to me, 1914 was a really interesting part of World War I. And a number of kind readers wrote and said, are you going to do another book on 1915 and 1916? I thought, pray heavens no, because um, I felt I'd done all the parts that really fascinated me. With World War II, although there have been a huge number of books written about intelligence and spies and code-breaking, I think that... I mean, some of them are very good in their way, but the, the, the missing bit, the missing link to me and what I wanted to put in there is, first of all, I think you've got to look at what happened to Britain in the context of what happened to other countries. Uh, that, for instance, if you take code-breaking, yes, our, our guys did brilliantly at Bletchley Park, but Hitler had his own Bletchley Parks, and the Germans, especially in the first half of the war, did much better at code-breaking, breaking some very important British naval codes, and, of course, the American military attaches code and so on and so forth, which gave them some very important stuff. So I think that balance. And also, the Russians, of course, had huge spy networks, which, again, are not as well known about in the West as they deserve to be. But the other part, apart from this global context, it's the question of what difference did it make. The only thing that matters is not what did everybody find out through Bletchley Park or through secret agents, is what did they do with it? How often did it enable you to change uh, what actually happened on the battlefield? And this is a big gap. I mean, I find a lot of people today think that once Alan Turing had created these bombs uh, in 1941, that um, from that moment on, we had access to virtually all the German communications. Well, it wasn't like that. Even at the very best uh, in sort of 44, 45, that Bletchley was only able to um, decrypt and translate about half of the stuff that they intercepted. And a lot of the signals, even in the last part of the war, took a very long time, days and weeks, to, to crack. And of course, by that time, the battle had moved on. And to give one example, by June 1944, when the Allies were overwhelmingly strong and the war was very much going their way, that Bletchley still had terrific problems with the German army code. It was breaking a lot of uh, Luftwaffe stuff and German Navy stuff. But throughout July 1944, um, the worst of the battle for Normandy, they were breaking virtually no German army traffic at all. The, the guys on the ground just had to fight it out without the benefit of any significant decrypts. Now, don't let me give a wrong impression that what was done at Bletchley was indeed miraculous and was one of the most important British achievements of the Second World War. But even those guys couldn't walk on all of the water all of the time. And do you think for Britain, was signals intelligence much more important than human intelligence? Yeah. One of the principal themes of my book is that there were some terrific spies, most of them working for the Russians, and the Russians were getting fabulous intelligence out of Germany until 1942 through upper-middle-class, left-wing Germans of the so-called Red Orchestra, and also from the Lucy Ring in Switzerland, which was also producing fantastic stuff. But Stalin didn't take much notice of it anyway. He never trusted spies at all, unless they were talking about plots against himself. The code-breakers were far more important, and one of the fascinating aspects of the British uh, effort is that the British never had significant secret agents in Germany. But... The British and Americans still had by far the best source 
in Germany about what was going on in the Nazi high command, Baron Oshima, the Japanese ambassador in Berlin, was constantly reporting back to Tokyo every detail of his meetings with Hitler, Ribbentrop, the Nazi high command, visits to Normandy to study the German defences, you name it. All this was being wirelessed back to Tokyo and was being broken by the Americans who were reading the Japanese purple coat. And so within hours or days, uh, they had on their desks far better information than any secret agent could have provided. So it was always the code breakers that mattered. And there's a very good line Montgomery's chief of intelligence, very clever Oxford Don called Bill Williams. And he wrote in a very important secret report at the end of 1945, he said we should be in no doubt that ultra and ultra alone, the stuff coming out of Bletchley, put intelligence on the map. He said until ultra really came on stream, which we have to remember, ultra wasn't delivering a lot of stuff regularly until mid-42 that affected the land campaigns. And uh, Bill Williams said, until Ultra came on stream, really, nobody took intelligence seriously. They didn't trust it. And when one's read, I read acres of British Army intelligence reports. And as soon as you start reading the sort of rubbish they were producing in 1939, 1940, 1941, you realise why they didn't take intelligence seriously. And even when Ultra started delivering, it took quite a while to persuade some generals, and especially some American generals, that this stuff was really important, that a lot of American generals thought that intelligence was for sissies. They just thought you get on and fight your battles and that's that. But gradually, uh, as they saw this fantastic stuff, these signals from the German high command, they start to realise that, yeah, you've got to take this very seriously indeed. So does that show that, that half the battle is not just actually getting the information, but it's what you do with the information that matters? It's always what you do with it. The two things uh, that... I've battened on to. Why did we, the British and Americans, do intelligence much better than the Germans and the Japanese and the Russians too? And the answer is because, first of all, um, the Allies were very good at using clever civilians, uh, people who, um, most of them academics, who were just really, really bright. Before the war, it hadn't seemed to matter too much that that everybody's secret services were in the hands of not very clever people. I mean, the British Secret Service was run by ex-colonial policemen and retired officers and so on, who mostly were pretty moderate people, and it didn't matter. But then suddenly, war comes, and you need brilliance. You need really clever people. And the British and the Americans recruited really clever civilians. I say lawyers and academics, a lot of them. And they gave them responsibility, and where it was necessary, they gave them high ranks. And they did brilliantly. And that was important. They never did it in the same way on the other side. And also, the first essential of intelligence, as you just said, is you've got to be willing to take it seriously and to examine it uh, frankly. And although Churchill sometimes got very cross with people who said things he didn't want to hear, he was always really willing to have an open debate and to listen to evidence. And the difference with Hitler, where, for example, by the middle of the war, Field Marshal Keitel, um, the head of uh, the German army staff, was telling um, the intelligence staff that they weren't to submit any more intelligence that might upset the Führer. And you're not like you'd do too well at fighting a war if you take that attitude. And so it was the openness of debate on the Allied side that was terribly important as far as... And I've written in some of my other books that... It is 
a contradiction almost about the war, that the German army was undoubtedly the outstanding fighting force of the war, but all their efforts and their professional brilliance and their courage meant nothing when Germany as a whole, under the Nazis, made war incredibly incompetently and an extraordinary almost paradox, whereas on the Allied side, uh, I've argued in my book that our successes with intelligence went quite a long way to compensate for the fact that the British and American armies were frankly not as good as the German army. I know it's hard to contract, but how important do you think the secret war was for Britain? I mean, I know there's, there's one quote that said it shortened the war by two years. No, that's nonsense. Can you by that? um, and I'm very surprised that came from Professor Harry Hinsley, the official historian of intelligence who worked at Bletchley. And his official histories are terrific. And he's a, he was a very clever man. But you can't quantify these things. You can't, no grown-up person, you can no more quantify the contribution of intelligence than you can that of Winston Churchill or Radar. There's a great phrase of Churchill's about making war when the RAF sent him a memo saying if he just authorised the manufacture of 4,000 heavy bombers, they would guarantee to defeat Germany within six months. And Churchill wrote back a brilliant memorandum, one of his best to me. This is about the end of 1941. And he wrote back and he said, everything possible is being done to create a heavy bomber force on the largest possible scale. But I deplore placing unlimited faith in any one means of winning this war. All things are always on the move simultaneously. This is terribly important. And this is true. You can't say, oh, well, Bletchley shortened the war by two years or, or um, that Bletchley was important, especially in the Battle of the Atlantic. And the American codebreakers... It, it enabled them, it was a, the American achievement in breaking Japanese codes that enabled them to win the Battle of Midway in June 1942, the decisive victory of the Pacific War that completely transformed that campaign. So code breaking was important, but I mean, one of the oddities, for instance, by the end of 1944-45, terrific flow of intelligence coming in from Bletchley to the Allied armies but they still suffer these two huge surprises at Arnhem and in the Ardennes. When September 1944 at Arnhem, when uh, they get thrashed by the remains of two SS Panzer divisions, and of course Hitler's great offensive in the Ardennes. Why did that happen? The, the evidence was quite clearly there. The evidence was there that the SS Panzers were in Arnhem. The evidence was there that um, the Germans were preparing to strike in the West. And um, all this, and the answer is, because by that stage, everybody felt so cocky, and they knew they were winning, and they just thought they were taking part in a victory march, and they thought they didn't need to worry too much about intelligence. So it's, it's amazing. You can have all this wonderful stuff coming on stream, and you can still manage to screw up some of the battles. I think another of my key messages in my book is that, in the end, intelligence alone, what matters is hard power. You've got to have the hard power to support your intelligence. In other words, in the first half of the war, they got some very good breaks from Bletchley. For instance, that the Germans were going to land in Crete and where and when and so on and so forth. But because they had, the British had rotten generals and not a very good army there, they were trashed in Crete. And in the desert, this happened too. You had to have the hard power. It was only in the second half of the war, when the Allied armies were much stronger and better, that they were able to exploit intelligence. And in the same way, everybody says how brilliant Operation Fortitude was, the deception before D-Day and after D-Day, and it was brilliant. But the only reason that, is, that deception could work 
was because the Allies were by then so strong, especially at sea, that they had the hard power to land almost everywhere. Whereas, you know, if the Germans had not known that they had this huge air and amphibious capability, then it wouldn't have been credible. So in the end, it's having the hard power that is critical. And why do you think the human intelligence failed so much? Because I mean, you, you hear all these amazing spy stories from the war, but why were they not more effective? The best spies were in the Russians' hands, but Stalin was so contemptuous of information from spies that what was a tragic was that so many of these brilliant agents he had, Richard Sorgen in Tokyo and the Red Orchestra and the Lucy Ring, nearly all of them died horrible deaths in Nazi or Japanese hands. And it was a tragedy. They sacrificed everything, and it really didn't change much because of Stalin's reluctance to listen. But to me, one of the most amazing intelligence stories of the war, very little known in the West, and it's really only in the last few years become accepted that this story is true on the basis of the Russian information, is that of Agent Max. Amazing story, uh, which I was... Andy Beaver drew my attention to it, and I, I looked at it, and at first I couldn't believe it, but there's no doubt the evidence is there, and I've written about it at length. In the winter of 1941, a young Russian called Alexandra Demyanov skied into the German lines south of Moscow and announced that he, who came from an old noble family, uh, represented a, a monarchist resistance movement in Russia uh, who were on Hitler's side, and the Germans embraced him, and the German intelligence service, the Abwehr, trained him and parachuted him back into Russia with um, Wallace. Well, a month or two later, Agent Max reports that uh, he's now become a wireless operator at Red Army headquarters, and for the next two or three years, he sends fantastic information to the Germans who are thrilled. And Colonel Reinhard Galen, regarded as the best German intelligence officer, the head of their Eastern Front intelligence, Reinhard Gellin is ecstatic about the product from Agent Max. And all these wireless reports from Agent Max to Galen have another audience in Britain. They're being intercepted by Bletchley and passed to Hugh Trevoropa, the historian, who was in charge of monitoring the Abwehr for the British. And he looks at all this stuff from Agent Max and he reports to the Russians. They've got a security leak the size of the Grand Canyon and they do nothing. And so... Trevor Roper reports, and again, in the National Archive at Kew, you can read all this stuff step by step. Trevor Roper reports, well, we must assume the fact the Russians have done nothing means he's a double working for Moscow. But then there's another twist. Stalingrad, decisive battle of the Second World War, completely transforms the picture. Winter of 1942, Operation Uranus, launched by the, um, the Russians to envelop the German Sixth Army. Huge success. Germans absolutely thrashed. But simultaneously with Operation Uranus, the Russians launch another offensive further north, Operation Mars, which is a disaster. And they lose 77,000 dead in Operation Mars. And at this point, Trevor Roper says, well, any idea at all that Agent Max is a double is out of the window because Agent Max had told the Germans that Operation Mars was coming and enable them to move reinforcements up there to deal with it. And as Trevor Roper and the British said, well, absolutely nobody is going to deliberately leak information that costs 77,000 lives just for a deception. But Stalin did. This is the astounding thing, that we're now, the evidence is absolutely clear that Stalin personally authorised the NKVD to leak through Agent Max, who was the NKVD's Agent Heiner, this stuff 
to deflect attention from Operation Uranus down south around Stalingrad. And only in Stalin's ghastly universe could such a stunt have been organized and all those lives lost um, purely to serve a deception. So that was an intelligence operation that undoubtedly did make a difference at a critical moment. And it's a fascinating story. I mean, I found it one of the most fascinating stories of the war. It must be interesting when you're researching double agents. Is there still sometimes some ambiguity about which side of them were really on? Well, one of my favourite stories that I came across doing this book, and it's funny how you... This is what's so riveting about being a historian. You keep coming across stuff you have absolutely no idea about. I came across a reference in a book to a guy called Ronald Seth, and it just was a one-line reference, the fact that he popped up somewhere apparently doing something weird. And I thought he sounded vaguely interesting. So I asked the National Archive, I said, next time I'm in, can you be kind enough to dig out whatever you've got wrong set? And I go in there, and there's files about a foot deep, a thousand pages of stuff, MI6, MI5, MI9, SOE, and it's an absolutely astounding story, which nobody knows, that Ronald Seth was a teacher, took up a job in Estonia on the, Bal- on the Baltic, and he taught there for two or three years before the Second World War. Comes back, wife and two young children, works the BBC for a bit, has a row with them, and then is posted in the RAF and becomes an administrative officer in Wiltshire. He's bored out of his mind. And he writes a letter one day, and every detail of what I'm about to tell is in the files at Q. To SOE, saying, Dear sir, I'm a very bored administrative officer in RAF base, but I have a unique knowledge of Estonia and the Estonians. I suggest that I can make a terrific contribution by being parachuted into Estonia to start a resistance movement. Well, 90% of the bored people who sent letters like that went straight in the bin. But at this time, the Russians were struggling. The British were desperate trying to help them. The Germans occupied Estonia and the Baltic states and were getting shale oil out of it. So we embraced Royal Seth and they say, marvellous news, uh, come and join us and we'll parachute you into Estonia. You can blow up all the shale oil plants and we'll all live happily ever after. And he spends most of 1942 being trained by SOE. And they realised he's a bit weird. I mean, there were various things they overlooked, like the fact that, that his check for his last mess bill at his RAF station had bounced, couldn't drive a car. And he, at one point, suggested to SOE that they should inflict some disability on him to prevent him from being eligible for forced labour service by the Germans. SOE turned that one down. Again, this is all in the file. <laughs> because they said that if they disabled him, the government would be liable for paying him a disability pension after the war. Anyway, he's parachuted into Estonia, October 1942, and after that, um, nobody hears anything of him for a bit. There's a rumour reaches MI6 that somebody answering his description has been caught with the Germans and committed suicide. But the next development, May 1943, a Luftwaffe aircraft crashes in Switzerland loaded documents on board, which is a Swiss impound, and the British get copies. And again in the file, there's an SOE note saying, I'm afraid it looks as if this one involves us. And what they meant by this one, this was the translation of a German Abwehr interrogation report on Ronald Seth. And they realised he got him, and Seth, he told the Germans everything about his training and the whole thing, with a, few, a certain gloss. He told them he'd recruit, been recruited by a Jew in the air ministry, who put a gun to his head unless he did it. And he'd also told them that he was a group captain with a knighthood, was a close friend of the royal family. He displayed amazing thespian gifts to, frankly, dissuade the Germans from killing him on the grounds that he was too important. But after that, they were pretty depressed about all this, and one SOE officer wrote a 
cross note saying, I always thought Seth sounded pretty weird, fellow wasn't really fit for this, and obviously you just cracked up the minute he landed. But nothing more was heard till August 1944. Paris was liberated, and one day, a few days after liberation, a rather shady-looking Frenchman creeps up to a British officer in the street and says, you are British, uh, I have something here for you. Hands him an envelope, addressed to the War Office in London. When it gets there and it's opened, it contains a 74-page report from Ronald Seth describing his adventures, allegedly. And this was sensational stuff. I mean, he said he'd been in solitary confinement and been put through a mock execution, but then finally he'd agreed to work for the Germans, and the Germans had started training him for a mission back in England, and they'd taken him up to Paris. And, I mean, some of this stuff, it reads like Baron Munchausen. I mean, he's, he says he was lodged with a family of well-known French collaborators, of whom the sister, he said, in his report, he says, Sir, I'm afraid it was inevitable Lucette should become my mistress. Uh, I know this is unagent-like behaviour, but I have physical needs. And again, all this stuff goes on and on. Anyway, at the end, he says, I'm not really working for the Germans, I'm just pretending to. So, you know, you must believe that really I'm still a loyal British subject, even though I've been seen wandering around the streets of Paris in a Luftwaffe uniform. This, of course, causes a sensation in London. Uh, he signed himself incidentally. You couldn't believe his operational code name from SOE was Blunderhead. This caused sensation in London. Now you've got MI6, MI5, everybody on the case discussing whether he's a traitor, what's to be done with him. The next thing that's heard, the Germans have pulled out of out of um, France and gone back to Germany, and Seth's gone with them. An MI5 hand wrote in the files, he said, the first thing I'd like to know is precisely how Seth found the time and opportunity to write a 74-page report on all this. Anyway, he's next heard of a prisoner of war camp, in, a British prisoner of war camp in Germany, acting as a German stool pigeon. And he, he says he's an officer called Captain John De Witt, and the British start sending coded messages to London saying, what are we to make of this fellow? MI9 send messages saying, on no account, have anything to do with Seth, and so on and so forth, and he's very... But, I mean, he sounded... Several people in London started to say on his file, maybe he's gone off his head, and it was certainly all pretty weird. But Seth saved his best trick for last. The Germans whisked him out of this prisoner of war camp in March 45. A week or two later, about a month before the end of the war, knock on the door of the British Embassy in Bern, neutral Switzerland, and when it's opened, he says, I am Ronald Seth, I must be flown to London immediately to see Winston Churchill because I'm bearing peace proposals from Himmler. Well, he was flown to London pretty quickly, but not to see Winston Churchill. I mean, they really put him through it. And he's interrogated. I mean, there are again acres of all these interrogation reports. But the interrogators of MI5 ended up exhausted trying to figure out whose side this bloke was on and what he'd done. They concluded you couldn't believe a word he said about anything. But on the other hand, they said the fact remains he somehow survived two or three years in German hands. Uh, so he must have had considerable gifts. But in the end, they debated whether to try him for treason, but they decided one enough evidence. And in the end, they simply released him from uh, SOE in August 1945. And um, the last entries in his MI5 file well, first of all, an unsuccessful application to become Chief Constable of Wiltshire. And then, actually, he spent his declining years writing sex manuals and attempting to patent a penis enlarger. I mean, this is this guy, even in the ranks of agents. I mean, this bloke makes Eddie Chapman, Agent Zigzag, look like an amateur. <laughs> but that's a sort of amazing story that historians, if they're very lucky, come across sometimes in the files. And so you've mentioned also um, Zigzag. There's quite a few of these agents that are probably quite well known to the British public. 
Well, do you think often these people had more of a talent for adventure and, and stories than they actually did for spying? You're absolutely right. Uh, what's striking, the more one reads, and this goes for agents of all nationalities, a lot of them, all they really did abroad at considerable expense to their government was just to stay alive. The amount they learned. I mean, one, one guy caused absolute panic, a German agent in Stockholm. He really got the British rattled because they, through Bletchley, were monitoring the stuff he was sending to, back to Germany from his agent networks in Britain. And they went to, they put a lot of MI6 people onto him and tracking him in Stockholm. And they were driven to all these sort of other things, like they hired his maid and got her to take an impression of his safe key in a butter dish. <laughs> you can't believe all these sort of stunts really happened. And they checked all these papers and they found he'd been in Britain before the war. And this made me more worried because, but then sensation, September 1944, this guy, a guy called Kramer, he sends a message to Berlin saying that the Allies are about to launch a big parachute drop to capture a Rhine bridge, warning of Arnhem. Well, fortunately for the British, nobody in Germany took any notice of this stuff because the German intelligence service's credibility was low. But after the war, it's discovered that Kramer had absolutely no informants at all in Britain or anywhere else. He was just a playboy who lived it up in Stockholm uh, all through the war, very comfortably at the expense. And his Arnhem tip was just a wild guess. He had absolutely no knowledge about anything and he had no informants. And of course, but the British intelligence had wasted a huge amount of effort tracking Kramer and trying to figure out who his informants might be. So you do find, I mean, it's a really weird world. And again, what is scary is that even the spies who were good, very often no one took much notice of them. It was code breaking that made the difference. Well, what do you think motivated people to carry out these spy careers? Because they, they must have been extremely dangerous. I mean, so many of them, as you say, were killed. Why did they do it? It's a fascinating question. I mean, the answer is, I think, one thing that's amazing to, to most of us who value our necks and would no more take on a job as a spy at a risk of being shot than fly to the moon. But it's amazing how, especially in the climate of a war, an awful lot of people have got a terrific charge out of doing this business, even though they're risking their lives. I mean, I've written a lot about this Russian agent who wrote his memoirs in old age after he was called Anatoly Gurevich. And I think his memoirs are reasonably truthful. And he'd come from, a, you know, he lived through the Soviet Union as a very young man. And he suddenly finds himself in Europe in 1939, acting out a cover story as a Uruguayan playboy. And the Russians provided him, when at a time when Russia was starving, the Russians provided him with shed loads of money to live this cover very comfortably. And he loved being a Uruguayan playboy. Although, very funny, he wrote in his memoirs some of the things he said, I've been very carefully trained about lots of things, but I wasn't trained about how to behave like a, uh, like a rich man. He said the first hotel he checked into when he left Russia in Helsinki, he was completely thrown when the porter picked up his suitcase and carried it upstairs for him because nobody had ever done that. When he walked in the dining room, he assumed it was set for a banquet. He hadn't realized that this is how ordinary Western hotels fed people all the time. But so he loved it, Gurevich, even though he ended up spending years. We spent some time as a prisoner of the Germans and then a much longer period as a prisoner of, the, of Dalit. So he's pretty bitter about that. But his career, you know, he loved having the money and the girls and the whole thing. He thought it was great. And I came across a wartime SOE officer who wrote, who'd served in the Levant. And he was describing, he said he could never get over whenever he announced, he used a French word to describe his role, intelligence, 
and he said he could see the eyes of all these Arabs who read their, their spy stories and all the rest of it. This was a member of the British legendary Secret Service, you know, with omniscient, om, omnipotent, everything else, and so on and so forth. He said, lots of them asked me if I was a lord. He loved it. He thought it was fantastic. And you have to remember, in the context of a war in which soldiers, sailors, and airmen are risking their lives every day, that, you know, to a lot of people, being a secret agent was, a, was much more fun. And it sort of sounds crazy to talk about it being fun. Of course, it stopped being fun if you ended up in a concentration camp or against the wall. But, um, but if you managed to escape that fate, well, we should never underrate the terrific charge a lot of them got out of it. How easy was it after the war for these people, for their stories to come out? Because you'd imagine their governments wouldn't be too keen on that. It's a basic principle that you can't trust a word about anything to do with intelligence and certainly not spies' memoirs, that you have to remember the basic nature of espionage. It's all about deception and treachery. And half these people, they lose track of whether they're telling the truth themselves. And so you have to approach everybody's accounts and memoirs and a lot of the reports in the archive with great scepticism because you, you can reckon that parts of it are true. And this goes for Russians, Germans, the British. But which parts? It can be very hard. So I've said again and again in my book, I'm having a stab at figuring out what happened. But you always have to enter this caveat that you never believe a word any spy says. And it's the, just the nature of the beast. Treachery is their business. <laughs> so it must be really hard for the historian to try and navigate that and work out what, what you can actually believe. Well, you have to in the end. I mean, I throw in the dustbin. As soon as I see on the dust jacket of any new book, the word definitive, this is the definitive account, the definitive, you throw it straight in the bin because nothing any of us do can be definitive. That we're all having a stab at working out what happened, but you have to be suitably modest about what you can hope to come up with. I've had a stab here, which to me is fascinating, at trying to work out how much influence um, spies and code breakers had on the war. But never for a minute am I going to use that word definitive because we're all groping around in this weird secret world and you, you just have to, have to say this is as much as we're ever likely to find out because of course part of the trouble is you're heavily dependent on what they tell you, the written records. Yes, you've got exceptions like Blunderhead, Ronald Seth, where you've got a huge weight of files in the archive. But for the most part, you're dependent entirely on the unsupported word. I mean, I've said I prefer the Russian's Lucy Ring in Switzerland. We're entirely dependent for our knowledge of what the Lucy Ring tells Stalin. Yes, there are a few Russian documents, but on the whole, it mostly depends on what the members of the Lucy Ring told us in their subsequent memoirs. And even on a good day, I wouldn't believe more than about 30 to 40% of what's in any of their memoirs. And you mentioned earlier about how the, the Arab people who they how interested they were in the British spy yeah. fiction. How closely related do you think sort of spy fact and fiction were? Do you think these spies themselves were influenced by spy novels in their behaviour? Oh, yeah. I think that hardly anybody who was British had not been brought up on the thrillers of John Buckham, The 39 Steps and Bulldog Drummond and all this sort of stuff. And a lot of them, the agent I quoted earlier, who'd, uh, who used to describe himself as serving intelligence, he said... He said all of us saw ourselves as John Buchan's Richard Hannay and this sort of thing. And I think they probably did. It had a, it had a considerable influence on, on all that. But one thing that fascinated me, one's often told that Ian Fleming's novels and James Bond have no relation at all to the reality. 
And yet the longer one read all these reports of Russian commissars, contemporary reports, and then their subsequent memoirs, and it's quite amazing how far they echo the mad imagined dialogue in Ian Fleming's From Russia With Love among those people. And it was an unspeakably dreadful world. It's hard to describe. I mean, to give one example, very remarkable memoir, which I'd recommend to anybody. Pavel Sudoplatov wrote a book called Special Tasks, superlative. Again, you have to be cautious about how much you believe, but it's probably as good an account as we're ever going to get of a senior spymaster of the Russians. And Sudoplatov's account of his own experiences. Personally, I reckon it's probably about 55 or 60 percent true. He won his spurs in about 1938 as a young agent. He'd been sent to penetrate a Ukrainian nationalist group in Western Europe. And one day in Rotterdam, he walks into a restaurant and he presents the Ukrainian nationalist leader there, whom he'd become friendly with, with a superb box of chocolates ordained with the Ukrainian crest. And they chat for a few minutes and then Sudoplatov disappears down the street. And he only got all the way down the street and was loud bang. And of course, this wretched Ukrainian had opened his box of chocolates and it had blown up. And you can hardly believe that spies really did uh, give each other exploding box of chocolates. But Sudoplatov also described deadpan, how when Hitler invaded Russia in June 41, absolute crisis panic, he went to Beria, Stalin's spy chief, and he said, we're desperately short of intelligence officers because nearly all the best ones have been sent to the Gulag. We've got to get some of them out because otherwise, how are we going to fight this war? And he said Beria never asked him whether they're innocent or guilty. He just said, how badly do we need them? And Sudoplatov said, very. And he did agree to let out several hundred. But there are two aspects. This Sudoplatov writes in his memoirs, after I had got the order for their release signed, unfortunately we discovered that some of the best had already been shot. He describes this as if it was sort of everyday experience. Of, uh, but also, he said, again as a reflection, the madness of Soviet life, he said, um, after the war, he said, I was very fortunate. I'd taken good care in 1941. I did not personally sign the release orders for these people. I, I got um, Merkel off, his superior, to do it. He said, if I had signed them, he said, I would probably have faced a firing squad as Merkel off did. Because, of course, in none of these twists of half of them were accused of being enemies of the state. And Sudoplatov was spent 10 or 15 years in prison. But at least he kept his head. And it's such a mad, monstrous world in which... I mean, most of, the, most of Stalin's best agents in Western Europe, when they went back to Russia in 1945, they were promptly sent to the Gulag because they were assumed to have become tools of the capitalists. I mean, you can hardly believe it. And some of them were shot. It is an absolutely insane world. And reading about it, you know, we can read about being with Eighth Army in the desert and thinking, oh, well, it might have been fun to be there. Nobody in their right mind who reads about this mad world of, of espionage could believe it was fun to be there. That was Sir Max Hastings. The Secret War, Spies, Codes and Guerrillas, 1939-1945, is out now in the UK, published by William Collins. In the US, it's due to be published next May by Harper. And Max has written a piece on Second World War espionage for our November issue, which is currently on sale. Also in this month's edition, there are articles on Anglo-Saxons versus Vikings, the American Revolution, the Celts, and ancient Egypt. You can get hold of our November edition now in all good news agents and digitally. 
Before our next interview, I'd like to tell you about two BBC History magazine events which are taking place in February. On Saturday the 27th and Sunday the 28th of that month at Bristol's Emshed Museum, we're holding two-day events themed around Roman Britain and the First World War in 1916. Each day includes a star-studded lineup of speakers plus a buffet lunch. If you'd like to find out more or purchase tickets, please visit historyextra.com forward slash events. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Our second interview this week is with Andrea Wolf. Andrea is a historian and author whose most recent book is The Invention of Nature, a biography of the 19th century German naturalist Alexander von Humboldt, whose ideas were far ahead of his time. Our reviews editor, Matt Elton, interviewed Andrea recently to get the lowdown on an extraordinary man. What first inspired you to write this book? Well, Humboldt popped up over the past, well, no, first of all, I'm German, so Alexander von Humboldt is a big name in Germany. No one knows him in, in England or in America. So I kind of knew him from when I was brought up, and then I forgot about him. And then in the past 13 years, whenever I started a book, he somehow popped up because he's such a polymath, So he because he has his fingers in every single pie. And for the past, I would say, 10 years, I've been thinking about writing about him and never quite dared. So I had to write five books before I, you know, four books before I dared tackling him because he he is home in so many different disciplines. 
so I need it's almost like I needed to hone my writing and research skills to you know to be able to dare tackle him because he's such such a broad ranging character yeah he's I mean he he is I would say he's the last of all polymath and he was he was born at a time so he's born in 1769 he dies in 1859 which is the year when Darwin and published The Origin of Species. And when he dies, I think it's almost the last moment where one person can hold all that knowledge that he's holding in his head. Because then, scientists specialize so much, and they kind of crawl into their narrow fields of expertise, in a way. So he's, for me, the last person who can hold all this knowledge. But he also is, you know, he's a genius. He has this extraordinary memory, which a lot of the, his contemporaries um, comment on, that he can remember, for example, a shape of a leaf, uh, the rock strata, a the plant. soil colour. Yeah, over, you know, over decades and over, you know, distances of thousands of miles. That's why he is able to actually look at nature as a global force, because he, you know, he can just go back to his memory and remind himself, oh, I've seen this already in the Alps while he was standing on the Andes, for example. It's incredible. We'll talk some more about his his ideas a bit later. But I mean, how far can we trace his way of thinking and his way of looking at the world to him as a child or a young person? Can we see the origins there? Yes and no. So he's a he's a very typical child of the Enlightenment, I would say. So he's brought up. Um, in a very you know, privileged, wealthy, aristocratic uh, Prussian family. He had a very emotionally cold mother. His father died when he was quite young. But what his mother did was she provided this string of amazing Enlightenment teachers. So he's very much part of that. But then, and then he's, he's also, he's brought up in Tegel, which is the family estate, which is just outside um, Berlin. And it's, it's an estate which is set amongst huge forests, um, which a, a lot of them planted with North American trees, which were very fashionable at that time. So he, he's brought up as a boy amongst all these kind of exotic trees and he's unlike his brother Wilhelm who is very happy with books and with Greek mythology Alexander he runs out of the the you know the 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 house all the time he kind of he collects stuff and he comes back his pockets always filled with shells and seeds and plants and insects so he so he's brought up with enlightenment um, ideas he's brought up within nature and then when he is a young man, he meets Goethe, who is at that time um, Germany's greatest poet. And, and Goethe really gives him new eyes to see this world. And, and Humboldt himself describes that. He says that he gave, he, it's almost like as if he's given me new organs to view the world. So when he arrives in South America, he sees the world with his head and with his heart almost. And, and I think that's the extraordinary thing about Humboldt when we look at him now is that he straddles the Enlightenment and Romanticism. He he says we can only understand nature if we look at nature with reason, but also with our feelings, our emotions, our imagination. And that's why he's he was so appealing for the Romantics. Mm-hmm. Um, this sounds like a weird thing to ask, but how important in his career was the death of his mother? I think it was incredibly important because she was... 
his mother was so emotionally cold and but in such an overbearing presence, I think, in his life, because she wanted them, she wanted both sons to be Prussian, Prussian civil servants and was quite controlling over their education and what they had to do. And Humboldt always wanted to travel. He always wanted to go away. Um, he wanted to be an explorer, and there was no way she was going to allow this. And when she dies in um, 1796, he ri- I mean, he immediately writes to his friends like, basically, "Yay, my mom is dead." <laughs> um, and then, and then, because he inherits quite a lot of money, so he brags. He brags something like. I am so rich, I can gild my nose and my, my mouth and my ears. So he suddenly has this huge inheritance. His mother, who's been so controlling, is gone. And he just, you know, gets ready. I mean, it takes him three years to get ready, admittedly, because he's so pedantic about certain things. But then he's off. And so I think it's incredibly important for his career that she died. Yeah. Um, you talked there about him being pedantic. How important was his ability to understand you know, technology and to use new technology for the time to his later career, do you think? I think it's incredibly important for him because, I don't know, we tend to see a lot of these historical figures in this romantic um, way. You know, this is a man who really understood nature, but it's also someone who's incredibly interested in any kind of new technology right until he dies. I mean, he's, for example, obsessed with telegraphs because the idea that you could send, you know, you could ask a scientist in America and get an immediate answer, uh, it's just too exciting for him. But as a young man, he's very interested in all the latest instruments. So one of the reasons why it takes him so long to prepare for his expedition is because he wants to buy the best instruments that they are in Europe. So he travels through Europe to buy instruments, you know, this in England and this in Switzerland and this in Paris, and then he tests them. He takes them to the experts to learn how to use them, and then in the end he takes 42 of them, all packed in velvet-lined instruments, which you have to, you know, he schleps those (laughs) across the Andes, down the Orinoco, which I just find absolutely flabbergasting. Mm. Um, so then he heads to South America. Um, what was that like as an experience for him? Do we get a sense of what it was like for him as a person to head finally to this place? Yes, he is... Well, I think Humboldt was... felt very... It's almost like Prussia was this corset, this intellectual corset kind of imposed on him. And I think he felt absolutely liberated going to Latin America. He's also a scientist who, until he dies, always says that scientists have to leave their labs. They have to be outside. They have to be in nature to understand nature because he sees nature as this web of life, as this living organism thumping with life. And you had to be in nature to understand it. So for him, it's incredibly liberating. I think it also... Um, has to do with the fact that most historians don't really want to touch that subject, um, that he was probably gay. Mm. So it's a, it's a moment where he can leave all, you know, all that behind. He can just be who he is. You know, no one is checking on him. He's just out in nature. And I think that he, a lot of his frustration in 
in his personal life, I think, is expressed through physical exertion. And he always says that. He says, like, I don't have sensual needs. I just, you know, climb mountains. And if you look at what he does physically, it's absolutely mind-blowing. When he goes, you know, when he, they walk through the Andes, when they cross the Andes again and again and again, this is 2,500 miles through one of the, you know, harshest landscapes you can possibly imagine. By the time they climb Chimborazo, Humboldt is the most experienced mountaineer in the world. He's a really fit man. Mm. This is not a scientist who sits in an ivory no. tower. He's like a really very handsome, very physically fit man. Of all the, all the things that he saw and discovered in South America, what do you think are the most important things, if you had to choose one or two? Um... I think it's, it's climbing the Chimborazo. That's the moment when everything falls together for him. That's the moment when three years of traveling plus all the years in Europe almost come together in one moment because so, so imagine this he climbs the Chimorazo which is by then believed to be the highest mountain in the world and he reaches <coughs> almost to the top so he, he reaches um, almost 20,000 feet no person in the world has been higher than he has so he's standing literally at the top of the world and he looks down and it's so I went up Chimborazo, and it is an extraordinary sight because it's such a barren landscape around it. It's, it's very different to the Alps, for example. And he looks down, and he sees these kind of mountain ranges folded below him. And what he sees is that the, the journey he's taking from Quito, which is about 100 miles um, away, is a journey from almost from the equator to the poles because... Quito sits almost on the equator, so it's very tropical, the valleys. So when he walks through the valleys up to Chimborazo, he sees all these tropical um, species like daturas, banana plants, palm trees. And then within a few days, he's up on the peak of Chimborazo and he passes, you know, alpine plants and then moss likened to the, you know, snow, um, uh, the, the line of, of eternal snow. So it's this is almost like the North Pole or the South Pole. And he realizes at that moment that plants are stacked up on top of each other. So the, the vegetation zones are stacked up vertically. Um, and he understands that you should not see the world of plants in terms of classification, but in terms of zones. That's the moment when he understands there are vegetation zones, there are climate zones, that nature is a global force. So for me, that is the most important moment. And I also think the fascinating thing about Humboldt is that he is not the discoverer of one thing. He's not the discoverer of a natural law of a continent or something like that. He, is, he comes up with a view of the world. And that's what makes him so extraordinary, I think. Mm. Um, how, how does he come to see everything as being interconnected? I think he sees that because he travels so much. Mm. So he travels, he travels a lot in Europe. I mean, a lot. So Spain, Switzerland, Germany, of course. He was a mining inspector. So as a mining inspector, as a young man, he traveled all over Europe. Then he goes to Tenerife, then he travels a lot in Latin America, then he goes to the US, and then later he travels um, 10,000 miles through Russia to you know, Siberia. So at that time, not a lot of people have seen so much, and definitely not 
scientists and definitely not scientists who can remember every single thing they have ever seen. So it becomes very clear to him. It becomes very clear that this moss he's seeing here reminds him of a moss that he's seen in Germany and a moss that he's seen in a herbarium which was from Lapland. So he makes these connections and then he's obsessed with taking temperatures, for example. Now, if you think about how that was recorded until him, so temperatures were recorded in long, long tables. Humboldt comes up with this extraordinary thing that he draws these maps of the world with isotherms. So he comes up with the idea of an isotherm, which is what we see on weather maps today, which connects all parts of the world which experience the same temperature. Now, when you look at that, everything becomes so much clearer than if you look at long lines of um, numbers. And again, that's a moment when he sees that everything hangs together. Mm. So he's really the father of comparative climatology. Um, we should talk about his work on magnetism as well. How important was that? And um, you know, what did he dif- discover in that arena, I suppose? So one of the things that interested Humboldt was about magnetism is because it's geomagnetism. So it, it, since the 17th century, scientists kind of believed that Earth was one big magnet. So what interested him about that is the same as with plants and with climate, is that it's a global force. So wherever he goes, he measures the magnetic forces. He's pretty obsessed with it. And he discovers, for example, the magnetic equator, which is about seven degrees further south to the um, geographical equator. And he becomes um, so obsessed with it that when he moves to Berlin, for example, he spends six months taking magnetic um, observations all the time. He then does the same in Russia 20 years later, and he then calls the world to measure, you know, the magnetic fields across the across the globe. And it's this huge international scientific um, collaboration. The Brits are involved. So James Ross's expedition down to Antarctica is is the answer to Humboldt's call to measure um, geomagnetism across the world. So I think in the end it's two million observations are all uh-huh. collated together. So that's very important for him. And, and I think it's, it's the same thing. I mean, he's, he's the first to predict harmful human climate change. And it's the same idea. It's the kind of looking at nature as a, as a whole, as a web of life. So if you look at nature as a web of life, Everything hangs together. So if everything hangs together, if you pull one thread, the whole thing might unravel. So that's the moment when he realizes that things can go wrong mm. in a way. So he sees in South America, he sees the devastating environmental effects of monoculture. He sees what irrigation is doing, what de- deforestation is doing. And he predicts harmful human climate change. And he, he predicts, he even predicts, that's what I find amazing is that there are three ways for humankind to destroy the environment. One is through the felling of forests, one is through irrigation, and one is through um, steam in the in the industrial centres. He says in 1832. It's just unbelievable. I had no idea he'd done all that so early on. It's yeah. incredible. Why do you think um, his voice and his discoveries and him as a person has been overlooked or forgotten about almost? I think there's several reasons for that. One is that he is a polymath. So when he dies, which is the moment when scientists specialize, 
these expert scientists look down on someone who knows everything because it's almost like an amateur. So it becomes seen as something negative. So, you know, because you become a specialist. So that's one thing, I think. And the second thing is that he's German. So um, he's famous basically until First World War. Then uh, it is really not a great time in England and in America to celebrate a German scientist. You know, this is a time when the, when the English uh, royal family changes their surname because it's too German sounding. This is a time when in America, for example, which America was in love with, with Humboldt. This is a time when they burn German books. When there are lots of streets called Humboldt Street, they get renamed. <clears throat> so he, that's the moment when he gets completely forgotten. So I think it's these two, it's these two things, basically. So what do you think Humboldt's uh, most important legacy is? I think there are lots and lots of different legacies, but I think there are a few which stand out. One is that he really gives us the concept of nature that still very much colors our idea of nature, this you know web of life, this kind of live, living organism. Then I think the other thing that's incredibly important is his holistic interdisciplinary approach to nature that he, you know, today we have such a sharp line between the sciences and the arts. And I think we could do a little bit with his approach of bringing together the subjective and the objective. So I think that's incredibly important. And then maybe even most importantly, because he predicted human-induced climate change, I think it's almost time to remind ourselves that this has been an issue which has been going on a, you know, a very, very long time. That's something we really need to tackle. And, he's, and we need to tackle it through a kind of Humboldtian approach, this interdisciplinary approach. He believed in the exchange of knowledge and he believed in fostering communications between the sciences. All of that, I think, is incredibly important today. How, how do you think we can go about making his ideas cent more central? Is, is there a way that we can do that in, in society and in communities? Well, I think he's... There's this very strange thing. As a, obviously, as a historian, I tend to think it's really important that we know where our roots are and where our history um, is. And other people might completely disagree. But I do think that the environmental movement is really lacking um, a historical, philosophical root on which they can build. You know, they almost start with Rachel Carson in, 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 in the 1960s. And that's, you know, they can go far back. And I think Humboldt can just give us a platform on which to think about science and nature slightly differently. How, how would you like this book to change how people see him as a man and to see the world around them? Well, I, for me, this book is my attempt to bring him back into the pantheon of nature and science because I do think that he's one of the most extraordinary scientists of our times. Um, I think he's as important as Newton. Um, so I want, if this goes really super well, I would like every school child to know his name and to understand that this is the man who gave us our idea of nature. That was Andrea Wolfe. The Adventure of Nature, The Adventures of Alexander von Humboldt, The Lost Hero of Science, has just been published in both the UK and the US by John Murray. And that is pretty much it for this week. 
But please do listen in next time when we'll be joined by Dominic Sandbrook and Robert Service to discuss British cultural exports and the Cold War, respectively. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.